When we uh, started chapter 17 of John's Gospel a few weeks ago, I mentioned that it breaks pretty easily into three sections. So when we looked at uh, verses 1 through 5, we heard Jesus praying for his own glorification. And then when we moved to verses 6 through 19, we heard Jesus praying for his disciples' sanctification as he got ready to send them out into the world. And today in verses 20 through 26, we'll hear Jesus pray about unification. Uh, I think that probably everyone in the, in the room, probably all of us, really love the idea of Christian unity. Uh, because Ben preached last week, I've had a couple of weeks to, to just sit with these verses, and it strikes me that uh, though we really love the idea of Christian unity, few of us actually understand what the Bible means when it talks about unity. So we're going to read through the passage together, and then we're going to try to understand what it is uh, that Jesus is saying, what he is praying for here. Uh, so right after Jesus has prayed for the disciples to be sanctified or, or set apart so that, remember, they could be sent into the world, he prays this. Verse 20, I am not praying only for them, but also for all those who will believe in me through their message. May they all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I pray that they will be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one, so that the world will know that you sent me, and you have loved them, just as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they can see my glory that you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, even if the world does not know you, I know you, and these men know that you sent me. I made known your name to them, and I will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. I think these seven verses uh, contain some of the most mind-blowing truths in all of Scripture. I, I really do. Uh, my hope and, and prayer this morning is that somehow we might understand just a, a fraction of what Jesus is praying for. But some of the truths, honestly, uh, some of the truths in this prayer are for our minds, unfathomable. I can't even say the word unfathom. So deep. I can't comprehend them, right? Unfathomable. There we go. So we're going to need God's help in understanding that. And so I think it would be a good time for us just to pause and pray one more time and ask for God's help on this. Father, uh, as we consider these words of Jesus, your Son, your beloved Son, we pray that you would give us 
uh, ears to hear uh, what the truths are that are being prayed for here. Uh, I pray that you would give us minds to understand some of these deep and rich truths that are contained here. And I pray that you would give us soft hearts to receive uh, what Jesus is saying here and that we uh, together may put into practice what Jesus has asked for. And we ask for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen. There are um, a number of themes that, that sort of converge, that, that come together uh, here at the end of Jesus' prayer. Um, but I think to, to understand them, I, th- I think it's going to be best to pull some of those apart and, and look at them individually before we try to put them back together and, and understand the whole. So, first of all, we need to understand who Jesus is praying for here. Uh, Jesus prays in verse 20, for all those who will believe in him. And then he says, I pray that they would be one. Now, it's really common for preachers to say that in these verses, Jesus is praying for us. And that's true. Uh, he, He does. He is. Uh, If you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, uh, then Jesus is praying for you here. But it's much bigger than that, isn't it? Because he says that he's praying for all those who will believe in him. You see, Jesus is, is praying for his church. The universal church is what we sometimes refer to it as. Uh, Some of you, I know, grew up in traditions that recited the Nicene Creed, which which, uh, affirms our belief in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I I think I heard some of you even saying it with me there. And some of you who have attended, maybe you're not from that tradition, but you've attended a church that recites that creed, have found yourselves uncomfortable with it. Can I say that? Can I say that I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church? A little uncomfortable maybe with that language. What I want you all to know, you don't need to be afraid of the word Catholic because it literally means universal. That's all that word means. Uh, We sometimes mistake it for Roman Catholic, which is something other, but the word Catholic itself, when you see it in some of these ancient creeds, simply means universal. So Jesus is praying here for his universal church, the the body of believers that will one day make up that throng of voices around the throne in heaven, uh, a throng of people represented from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and I might add from every time in, in history, right? This is who Jesus is praying for. All believers in Jesus from the time he ascended to the Father to the time that he returns to take us with him. And in that first part of verse 21, Jesus prays that all of those people will be one. 
So before we unpack that oneness, we need to look at what comes next in his prayer because it is the source of the oneness that he is praying for. And by the way, I'm going to ask you to do some deep thinking this morning, okay? So hang on, and uh, I I hope that you'll be tracking with me. So uh, Jesus prays that his universal church will be one. How? Just like he and the Father are one. Now, Jesus made the same claim that he and the Father are one up in verse 11, when he was praying for the disciples, he says it again in verse 21, again in verse 23, but this isn't even the first uh, passage that we've heard him talk like this. He said it back in John chapter 10. He said it actually throughout John's gospel in his seven I am statements where he claimed to be God. He was claiming that he and the Father are one. But there's, there's more even than just the oneness that the Father and the Son share because the Holy Spirit is part of that unity of, of love in the Trinity that they have enjoyed from eternity past, from before the creation of the world. So we got to understand a little bit about the Trinity. What is that? Well, the Trinity is, is a word that a lot of us have heard, but um, there's not a lot of teaching on the Trinity, it seems, these days. Uh, It's a theological concept that, quite honestly, sort of breaks our brains, trying to to wrap our minds around it. We believe in one true God. Uh, uh, Israel, uh, throughout the Old Testament, the Lord your God is one, right? We believe in one God, not many gods, one God. But we also believe that there are three distinct persons that make up who God is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Even in these past few weeks where we've been in uh, these, these most recent chapters uh, of John's Gospel, the, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus has talked about all three persons of the Trinity multiple times, over and over again. Now, this sermon isn't primarily about the Trinity uh, or the doctrine of the Trinity, but without at least a basic understanding of the Trinity, we're not going to understand what Jesus is praying for. So we got to go there before we get back to the oneness that he prays for. Um, And I'd I'd like to go back uh, in, in helping us understand this all the way to Augustine. He was one of the early and and great thinkers when it came to a biblical understanding of the Trinity. His thoughts on the Trinity uh, are captured in what is known as the Athanasian Creed. Athanasian Creed. I'll let you look that up uh, on your own time, if if you would like. Uh, A more contemporary explanation or description of the Trinity is found in Millard Erickson's Uh, theology of the Trinity called God in Three Persons. And I'm going to put up on the screen here what he says about the Trinity. He says, The Trinity is a communion of three persons who exist and always have existed in perfect union with one another and in dependence on one another. Each is essential to the life of the others and to the life of the Trinity. They are bound to one another in agape love, 
which therefore unites them in the closest and most intimate of relationships. This unselfish agape love makes each one more concerned for the other than for himself. There is, therefore, a mutual submission of each to each of the others and a mutual glorifying of one another. There is complete equality of the three. There's a lot in that paragraph, okay? Um, I'll share it with you later. If you, if you want me to email you that statement, I'm, I'm happy to do that. But what Erickson is describing here is this intimate union based on agape love, love that only uh, is sourced from God, where there is no subordination. There is no subordination in the Trinity, Okay? What do I mean by that? One is not greater than the other. They all enjoy mutual submission. Same thing we as a body are called to. They submit to one another, but they are not subordinate to one another. And this is the historic Orthodox understanding of the Trinity. And it's key, I think, to understanding what Jesus is praying for when he prays for the church. Now, we could spend weeks talking about the Trinity, but my hope is this brief snapshot will be enough to get uh, the picture of what Jesus is praying about here in John 17. So we've seen who Jesus is praying for, the whole church throughout uh, the whole history and, and future of the church. We've seen this glimpse of the intimate unity of love uh, that eternally exists, Uh, in the Trinity. Uh, uh, One writer says that the Trinity is the kingdom of God before anything was created. It's hard for us to imagine what happened before anything was created, but the Trinity was in relationship with one another from eternity past. If that's not enough to blow your minds, buckle up because it's about to get really crazy here. The next theme in Jesus' prayer is that the church is invited into that unity of love found in the Trinity. In verses 21 to 23, Jesus prays that just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, we should be in them and they, the Trinity, would be in us. We, the church, have been invited into the intimacy of unity and love that has existed from eternity past and will exist out into eternity future. And I think it gets even more crazy than that because in verse 23 and again in verse 26, Jesus says that the Father has loved us, the church, believers, as much as he has loved the Son. The Father, God the Father, loves us just as he has loved Jesus. How has he loved Jesus? I think we see just in this passage that he has loved him eternally from before the creation of the world and will 
do so out into eternity future. He, he, he's loved him perfectly with no, no hint of selfish motive or, or agenda, just pure, the purest of agape love. And the Father has loved the Son infinitely, not, not just for time, but with a depth and a height and a, and a breadth that we can't even comprehend. Paul, Paul breaks into worship a number of times in his writing when he tries to comprehend this, and it just, his it, words aren't enough to describe it. This is incredible, you guys. Incredible. I don't understand how this is that God would love you guys as much as he loves Jesus. I'm kidding. All of us. That he would love all of us as much as he loves Jesus. I don't understand how that could be, but I know that it is. I know that that's true. In part because Jesus said it and everything Jesus says is true. And in fact, Jesus has said that everything he says, he he gets from the Father. So this is coming directly from God, that he has loved all of us with the same love that he loves Jesus with. We've seen that Jesus is praying for the unity of all believers in every time and place. We've seen that the Trinity has existed uh, in a union of agape love forever. And we've seen that we, the church, are invited into that intimate relationship of, of unity and love found in the Trinity. And just before we, we look a little more closely at what that unity should look like for the church, I want to suggest that any unity, quote, air quotes, unity, we might experience is only because of the unity of the Trinity that we have been invited into. We cannot experience unity apart from the unity of the Trinity. The unity found in the Trinity, let me say it that way. Jesus said just two chapters earlier in John 15 that apart from him, we can do how much? Good answer. That's what he said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. First John 4.19 says that we are only able to love at all because why? He first loved us. And friends, we are only able to experience unity as we, as we remain connected to the unity of the Trinity that we have been invited into. And if, if at any point we disconnect ourselves from the vine, disconnect from that loving unity of the Trinity, uh, we have removed ourselves from the source of unity that Jesus is praying for, and our attempts will be futile. We can't do it. So, we've looked at some of those various themes, foundational truths that we've seen in Jesus' prayer. So I think we may be ready now to talk about biblical unity as it pertains to us. Um, I, I, I think you all know this about sin. What, what sin does is it, it always distorts 
God's design, right? Um, Satan, God designs or promises something and then Satan comes along and promises satisfaction in uh, what we might call counterfeit versions of God's design or God's promise. Uh, For example, God has uh, designed sexual intimacy as uh, something that is an expression of covenant love in marriage. That was his design. And Satan comes along and says, you don't need covenant love to, to be sexually satisfied. Who told you that? And so people explored free love, right? Some of you are old enough to remember that term, which wasn't real love, and it wasn't satisfying, and it wasn't free because it, it destroyed people, still does. Here's another example. God offers deep, abiding joy for those who will anchor themselves in the goodness and, and grace of God. And Satan comes along and says, you know, there, there are other ways to get a hit of dopamine in your brain and feel good. There are lots of things that will make you happy. Go do those things. Here's a little pill. It'll make it so it doesn't hurt so bad anymore. It'll give you a hit of dopamine. Oh, you'll feel great. It's not joy. It's not lasting. And, and today, people are dying in horrific numbers uh, because of pursuing that. Well, in the same way, I believe, as we, as we come to this idea of, of biblical unity, it's really no different. God has offered to us something that has been modeled in the Trinity since eternity past, something beautiful, and Satan comes along and offers something called uniformity. God offers unity. Satan says, oh, here's something that looks a lot like it. Uniformity. Uh, Satan says you you can achieve unity through what the world calls tolerance. We all just get along, right? But that won't work, and... You can achieve the impression of unity then, when that doesn't work, by forcing others into submission. Does that sound like unity? No. See, unity and uniformity are not the same thing. Biblical unity isn't isn't a, a totalitarian unity of coercion or fear, and it isn't the unity of compromise. What Jesus is praying for is a unity of love and common identity in the Trinity. This is why 
what we were saying about the Trinity just a few moments ago is critical to understanding what Jesus is praying here. I want you to think with me on this for a moment. Who is Jesus praying for in verse 20? Who did we say? Yeah, all believers, all those who will believe. Every person who has believed since Peter preached that first message about Jesus in Acts 2 and 3,000 people were added to the church. Every person who has believed since Paul and his friends went north up into Asia Minor and, and told people about Jesus. Every person who came to faith in Jesus when the Ethiopian eunuch Uh, went back home to Ethiopia and told his friends about the Messiah. Remember, he was reading from Isaiah. Philip said, let me tell you who that is that you're reading about. And he believed and was baptized and went home and evangelized his own people. We're talking about every believer in China that heard the message of Jesus when when my wife's aunt and uncle went there to tell people about Jesus, when other missionaries went there to tell people about Jesus and then were marched out by the communists, we're still hearing stories of people that came to faith back then, right after the war, World War II, and how the church is spreading like crazy. Jesus is talking about them. He's talking about every believer in Kazakhstan or Korea or Africa or India or South America or indigenous peoples in North America. Every believer of European origin. All of them. I've left out some, I know. All of them, though. All of them Jesus is praying for here. And that's just a few of the different ethnicities. What about all the different denominations and and sects of Christianity? Roman Catholic, Orthodox, all of the thousands of of Protestant faith traditions. You know there are more than 45,000 Christian denominations today? 45,000 denominations, get this, that believe that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God and that eternal life is found in him alone. 45,000 different denominations believe that. And Jesus prays for all those people. That every one of them, every believer in every time, in every place, is supposed to be one. Now let me ask you, how in the world is that going to happen? Huh? You think those, those 45,000 denominations believe exactly the same thing on every point of doctrine or theology? No. So what is this unity that Jesus is praying for? I want to look at at two things that I think might be helpful in understanding this. First, I want to put the slide back up of uh, uh, Erickson's uh, description of the Trinity. Uh, First time we looked at this, we were thinking in terms of the unity within the Trinity, right? Right? But this is the same unity that Jesus 
is inviting us into. So let me ask you, what if this description about the unity in the Trinity was also the description of unity within the church? What if what we saw in the church was a dependence on one another? That, that each one was essential to the life of the others, bound to one another in agape love, more concerned about the other than myself, mutually submitting to one another. I don't know about you, that sounds like a pretty amazing community of faith. In a few weeks, we're going to start a new series on the one another commands in, in the Bible. And we're going to hit on a bunch of uh, these, these themes. So I, th- I think that's helpful in, in beginning to think about the unity that Jesus is praying for. Uh, but but if, if we want to go to one passage that I, I think captures this, uh, I go to Ephesians 4. Uh, where the Apostle Paul calls believers into this same unity that Jesus is praying for. And here in Ephesians 4, Paul reminds them that in humility, patience, gentleness, uh, they are to pursue the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he defines that unity, saying that we are called into one body by one Spirit to one hope in the Lord, one faith, not some religion that says there's lots of ways to God. One baptism, uh, that baptism into the name. Remember, name is, is, is character. It's the reality of who that person is. So baptism into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That, that trinity, that's what we are baptized into. One God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Some Bible scholars call this passage uh, the unity creed. They think that it uh, it may have been recited often by believers as they gathered together from their very diverse uh, ethnic and socioeconomic uh, backgrounds in a way that the world said, what is going on there? People don't do that. But some scholars think, no, they they kept reminding themselves of this as they gathered as one body to worship the Lord. It's interesting, there are seven ones listed here. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Seven, biblical number of perfection. Now, below that, okay, There are secondary or tertiary issues uh, that that can become more about uniformity than unity. And we need to be really careful about confusing those two things. Uh, too, Too often, I believe, when people use the word unity, what they mean really is uniformity. And what they mean by that is you should think like I think. You should believe what I believe because I'm right, right? I want to suggest this morning that when we do that, we've completely lost sight of the Trinitarian unity of love that we have been invited into 
and are called to, as, as Paul says. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I wish I didn't, I don't really, but sometimes it would be much easier, I'll say it this way, if I didn't hold the Bible in such high regard. Because uh, friends, and you are my friends, uh, one of the dangers I see in the American church today is that we've come to define evangelical as belonging to a certain political party or certain political agenda. Um, I talked with someone just a few weeks ago who quit coming to our church a long, long time ago because they began to believe that they weren't welcome here. I mean, this, this comes down to us, right? They weren't welcome here because they know uh, they, they, they didn't believe they were part of the right political party or others didn't believe they were right, a, a part of the right political party. Friends, political parties are not where we find our unity. They're not. And if, if we're looking for it there, of course we don't have unity. Right? We're people with different views on, on stuff. Uh, but that's not what Jesus is, is calling us to. If Jesus, and I think he is, if he is praying for all believers from all times in all places, this cannot be what he means. You know, out, outside of our own uh, church family here, I meet regularly with pastors and other pastors in our community from other denominations who believe a lot of different things than I believe, right? And some of those differences, honestly, would make it challenging for us to worship together, right? But these brothers and sisters, I can tell you from, from meeting with them and praying with them, they absolutely affirm what Paul says here about our unity and what it is anchored in, that there is one spirit, one body, one hope, one Lord, Jesus, one faith in Jesus, one baptism into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God. They would affirm that. They do affirm that. So biblically speaking, even though we're really different, we have unity. We have unity. I was talking with a friend this week about my sermon, and uh, he told me about an interview he saw um, with last week's winners of the NCAA Women's Softball Championship, the, the World Series of Women's Softball. Um, and some of you, I, I know, have seen this. Um, early on in the interview, the women talk about creating unity on their team, creating a team. What, is it, what does it mean to create a team? And then the, the con conversation sort of moves to finding joy together as a team, but you can still hear the, the theme of unity uh, woven through it. Um, I want to play that for you, and, and guys, have the volume up so we can hear what these 
ladies say. Turn your attention to the screens. Ladies have discovered unity and joy in the Lord. And as you've heard, they have to regularly remind each other to fix their eyes on Jesus. Eyes up. And that interview takes me to another point uh, here in this prayer. Uh, Twice, um, in verse 21 and again in verse 23, Jesus 
says that our display of this Trinitarian unity will be a witness to the world. In both verses, he says that the world will believe that the Father sent the Son because of that oneness, that unity. Now, Trinitarian unity cannot be uh, uh, separated from uh, agape love. Uh, We saw that in Erickson's definition of the Trinity. Um, So this this prayer of Jesus is in agreement with what Jesus uh, said earlier on the same evening, that the world would know Jesus' disciples by their what? Love for one another. And we're not all going to have an opportunity to witness to the sports world uh, in an interview on ESPN, right? But our loving unity is a witness in our community. And Jesus puts a lot on the line with this. It's not just a nice thing to do. It's mission critical. Our witness depends on it. I focused a lot on verses 20 to 23. Maybe I should have just taken that for this morning. But let me just mention this too. As, As Jesus closes his prayer, he asks the Father for one more thing. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they can see my glory that you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. We often talk about how much we want to go be with Jesus, right? That's awesome. Uh, But here in verse 24, we see that the heart desire of Jesus is for us to be with him as well. When we were in John 14, a few weeks ago, we heard Jesus talking about going to prepare a place for us, you remember? And in one translation, It says it this way, I'm going to make arrangements for your arrival. I will be there to greet you personally and welcome you home where we will be together. I wonder, that right there might be why Grace Elkins was saying, it's so good to be here. I think I'd like that to be my dying words, you know. And until that day, when he greets us personally, Jesus prays in verse 26 that God's love would be in us and that Jesus himself, in the person of the Holy Spirit, would also be in us. At the beginning of this message, I said that we needed to pull the pieces apart before putting them back together and trying to understand what Jesus is praying for. And and so hopefully with a little better understanding of what those pieces are, let me just try to summarize what Jesus is praying for in this last part of his prayer. As Jesus prays for, for all believers from all time and in all places, he says in verse 22 that he has shared his glory with us. Now remember, from a couple of weeks ago, that when God reveals his glory, he's putting his character on display. And part of God's character is the loving unity that he enjoys in the Trinity. But God isn't content to stop there. You see, because he loves us with the same love that he has for Jesus, God invites us all who have believed in Jesus into that unity, that loving unity of the Trinity. 
And as we enter into that loving, intimate union with God, Jesus prays that it will be on display among us. And that loving unity that that we have with one another, uh, and in fact, with all believers from all time and all places, that that unity becomes a witness to the world around us until that time that Jesus comes to take us to be with him. That's my attempt to summarize these seven verses into maybe more of a, a linear progression. As I've said, as we've gone through this, we've only just scratched the surface of all that's in here. There's some really deep theological truths in this passage, truths that that need to shape how we think about God, how we think about the Trinity, how we think about the unity that Jesus is praying for. Really deep ones, worth your time to, to, to mine the depths of them. But as I close, let me, let me just give three uh, practical, I think, takeaways for us. It almost sounds cliche, doesn't it? You've got to know this. I, I don't know, there's... Someone here needs to know this this morning. Maybe you're struggling to believe this. God loves you. He loves you. Jesus says that he he loves you with the same love that he loves Jesus with. Let that sink in. God loves you. He's crazy about you. Secondly, we have this amazing truth that we've been invited into the love and unity found in the Trinity. We've been invited into this intimate relationship with God. So often people settle for some sort of mental belief in some ideas about God. I'm sorry if that's you. You're probably not here this morning if that's you. Because most people who do that at some point go, it didn't really do anything for me. Well, of course it didn't. It never was intended to. Right, right belief is important, but what Jesus is praying for here is this intimacy with the Trinity. When you settle for something else, you're, you're missing out on the abundant life that Jesus offers. And the third thing that I would say, and this is probably maybe the most practical that I'd like us to put into practice, I borrow from what Alyssa in the video said. Eyes up. Eyes up. Friends, there are all kinds of things that we can find to disagree on. You know? There are. In fact, I I think it's easier for people to form groupings around what they're against than what they're for. I really, really do. 
There are whole churches that are formed around what people are against. But our, our unity is only going to be found in being for Jesus, for those things that Paul talked about in Ephesians 4. And so I wonder, maybe we can begin reminding each other of this when we, when we find that there are disagreements that are threatening our unity. Oh man, you know, I really, I really didn't like what Pastor said in that sermon. Hey, eyes up. Did you see what she did? Hey, friend, eyes up. Did you hear about? Whoa, 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 whoa. Mm-mm. Eyes up. We've got to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus until that day when we see him in glory. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this prayer that the Holy Spirit has wonderfully preserved for us. It's beautiful, it's rich, it's mind-blowing at times. But I think most of all, it it shows us just how much you love us. So thank you for inviting us into the relationship of the Trinity. Thank you for making a way for that to happen. Thank you for your spirit that lives in us, that, that, that makes loving unity possible in the here and now. And Lord, in response to your love, in response to being invited into that relationship, we now offer ourselves, our, our, our lives, our resources to you. I pray that our own generosity would reflect your generosity to us. And may you use these gifts now for your kingdom purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.